Sorry, I should have to. Look, look, Margaret. <laughs> 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 Do you need? So I'm going to call the meeting of the finance committee to order. Uh, Madam Clerk, so would you please take the roll? Gary Charland? Present. Kaniki Banerjee? Here. Michelle Lawrence? Here. And Anthony Thompson will be excused today. Thank you. We have a quorum. <clears throat> Thank you. All right, the first item we'll be moving into is the approval of the minutes of February 2nd, 2017 of the Finance Committee meeting. Do I have a motion to approve? So moved. Is there a second? I second. Any comments, corrections? I, I do have um, an item that I'd like to discuss, and I know that when we spoke last time in the in the context of the signing authority, we had had a little bit more substantive discussion about you know um, some of the uh, finance issues about freed or the other things, and I just wish some of the nuances of that, even if it's not. You know, he said, she said some of that, but some of the complexity of that conversation would be captured because I know that we don't take a lot of the finance to the full board meeting right now. And so mostly it's just so a lot of our peers re rely on this document to get some. And I just think that it was such a great case of, uh, you know, having that brought up, but also to see that now, to see that fruition of having a more in-depth discussion right now. It was something that was on your mind. It was something that flagged up for us. So uh, it, it relates to a couple of other things that I know our other trustees have also felt, you know, about contracted services and how eventually over years, you know, we these things can happen without knowing where someone is more becoming more like a staff as valid and as much as they need to be so I thought that the uh, thing about bringing it on a monthly basis the, the kind of nuance that we brought would have been nice to have captured on this but other than that it's fine. so two suggestions uh, one you could um, not approve the minutes and we could bring them back next month with those changes or you could um, uh, request that this part of the minutes be revised and then you could delegate authority to the chair or one of the members of the committee to approve those. You could approve the minutes with the direction that there be revisions made to these and then delegate authority to one of the members to approve those revisions once they've been made. I'm happy to withdraw my motion and I was going to vote no, but if, if we can do, uh, you know, a better job of just uh, bringing, back bringing that back, that would probably be better because it goes into record. So the motion has been withdrawn. I assume the second is withdrawn. Mm -hmm. Okay, so second. we'll just bring this back meeting next month. So we'll bring these back and they'll be deferred to the next meeting. Thank you. Uh, that's the end of the consent agenda, which brings us to tab two, the contract approval, which is action items and discussion, beginning with uh, retrospective review, review of the prior contract. Sorry, mm -hmm. on tab two. Very stuck with me, Mr. Ramner. Thank you. 
Uh, so this is a, a contract that was approved in, in December of 2014 with Xerox to provide uh, printing and print management services across uh, Highland Hospital, uh, John George, Fairmont, and the uh, F2HCs. And so the primary purpose of this was to lower our costs uh, overall for how we do printing services and the management of those. So previously, uh, individual partner departments would purchase all their own toner cartridges and um, services were provided on, a, on, a, on an as-needed basis. Each time a machine broke, we would either fix it ourselves or we would call Xerox and they would fix it for us. So the purpose of this contract was to bring all that together under Xerox management, allow them to manage the printers and fix them when they needed to be fixed. If they needed any preventive maintenance, they would automatically do that and we wouldn't have to be required to purchase anything around that contract. That was the idea behind the contract. Uh, providing one person on site, one FTE, to do all of those services and um, <coughs> and do that. To be specific on this, though, we noted that at Alameda and San Leandro, those are not included in this. They were on separate contracts and uh, not contemplated as part of this agreement. Uh, so the good news is they're meeting all the service requirements that are in the contract. So you'll see their uh, annual uptime on the current devices is exceeding the standard. Uh, the instant resolution is exceeding the standard and the response times are exceeding standard. So the graphs just to kind of depict the efforts. Uh, what happened in Q2 was the ACT opened, and so the number of tickets that were opened for things to be fixed uh, reduced dramatically while we were making all that move happen. Um, Q3, you can see they jumped back up again because we were back on um, needing to fix things, things were breaking. As equipment gets used, it gets, it, printers, I will say, printers are basically evil they have problems, there's lots of mechanical stuff that happens in printing and, and it's um, just basically problematic. And so that's the, one of the reasons for the contract is because it helps us alleviate all of those problems and fixes. Uh, on the next slide you'll see our spend and so the reflection of this is the contract did what it was intended to do. It reduced our overall cost for operating our printers and throughout our print network uh, with Xerox. And so we're very happy with this. We, we're achieving the goals. Uh, that were set out within the contract, uh, spending less than the contracted amounts in both 2000 and 2000, 2015 and 2016, and on track in 2017 to spend about what the contract was rated at at 720000 per year. So we're, we're happy with that uh, performance financially on this contract. Uh, what our findings are out of this are, we're, we're meeting expected spend and, and savings from this, and we're meeting the, the service level agreements that we expected to get from them. What we see as our opportunities are, uh, part of the what was uh, contemplated in this agreement was a reduction and consolidation of non-network printers, because an individual printer sitting in someone's office is about the most expensive piece of paper you can print. Those individual printers running on their uh, high-cost consumables, uh, we save a lot more money if you use the larger um, print, print servers, multifunction devices that we have, and color printing is also expensive, so we're reducing the number of color printers throughout the organization unless they're needed, right? So we use color where color is appropriate. Don't use color where it's not appropriate. You don't need to print your email message in color, right? That can be printed in black and white and, and work towards people to get that done. Print it where it's appropriate, Mr. Moore. Where it's valuable. Um, with that then, um, what we found is that consolidation has not happened as rapidly as we would like it to. Uh, the majority of consolidation happened as part of the ACT project and the moves to the Support Services Center uh, in preparation for the move out of the H building. 
Uh, we can sell a lot of people to the SSC, where we took away a lot of individual printers, most of that done through our efforts of uh, working towards that consolidation. Uh, also, reducing the, the print volume was a goal of the, of the contract, looking at them to move towards more electronic forms, more electronic signatures, uh, uh, being able to send documents more, more easily, e-fax capabilities, uh, things that do not require a printing and faxing or a printing of a document to be used. And, and so we've not seen that type of work out of them uh, in this project. What's been happening there is we've done the majority of that work. We've implemented our e-fax platforms and allowed those things to occur because we knew it was problematic for our staff in time savings to do that. Uh, and so also Alameda and San Leonardo are out of scope. While we've talked to them about that, um, we've not been able to come to agreement on how that's been done because they feel they've I will say underbid this contract and the number of support services necessary to meet those service level agreements while they're doing it. I think that's why we're not achieving these other things that were contemplated because the person that would have been doing that is so busy doing the break fix that they've got. And it, so it's a little bit of uh, catch 22. He doesn't have time to do work on printer consolidations because he's so busy fixing all the printers we have out there. Whereas if he took the time to reduce the printers, there wouldn't be as many printers breaking. And so that, that's efforts that I think Xerox can come to the table and do more with us of working on that and while we contemplate the Alameda and San Leandro project. Currently they're on a, they do have contracts at Alameda and San Leandro with them. It's like our old contract break fix, uh, not all inclusive of print management services. So we're still working with them on those activities. Uh, and so still work to be done. Uh, David, I, I, you talked about the break fix. Do we, do we, are these hours or are we leasing these printers? Uh, they are our printers. Ouch. But, but we bought them already. We already own them. And so as we look to replace printers, we replace them with Xerox printers and Xerox managed printers instead of... Leasing or buying Xerox printers? Uh, we, we buy them. Well, I should... Refer some of them are leased and some of them are purchased. So the larger multifunction devices like we have in the, in the administrative suites, that's a lease device. And those are printers uh, and copiers, right? Yeah, it's a printer, copier, fax, yeah, right. multifunction devices. So, so in our large implementations, we use those sure. big multifunction devices. So do you have a replacement plan for, for the printers? I mean, is there, do you have that plan for the replacement? Well, why I say that is because yeah. the technology changes Right. pretty quickly. Those things get used a lot. They break down easily, as you know. So you really talked about the fix issue and not necessarily the cost of leasing. And right. Um, right. so is the leasing a different contract? No, it, it does. That does come under this contract. It comes so under the this devices contract. that are leased are part of this contract and those that are owned by us and purchased by us are, are that fixed, are covered under are this fixed contract. Under this. So, so what do you see as the percentage of the ones that we own versus the ones we lease? Yeah, I don't because I'm a lease person. I mean, I think it is better for an organization to lease these things than yeah. it is to purchase them. Uh, I don't know that exact percentage. I, I can tell you all of the very large devices are leased. Yeah. So the very big devices, the small devices that would be um, a departmental printer or a, a small departmental printer or an individual printer would be purchased. Okay, and so a department may have that in their budget. They can go and purchase a new printer. No, that would all come through us. That, that all runs through IT, so we manage that print. Uh, so when a request comes in for a printer, someone wants to buy a printer, it has to come through IT because it's going to be under this contract. It needs to be the right device. It needs to be sized appropriately. So someone doesn't buy a very small printer because it's cheap to run for you know 20 people to use. 
and it's going to break down day one because the duty cycle is not meant to meet that need. Okay. So we manage that with Xerox around what's the right device to put in those situations. How successful have you been in reducing the number of printers out there, and is that something that you're currently managing actively, or is Xerox helping you manage that so that you've got more of these larger print servers in place as opposed to everyone having one in their office? Yeah, I would say we've been very successful, uh, we have been very successful in doing this because of the consolidation at the support services building. Uh, in our previous setups, how people were in offices within the H building was not conducive to having a central print location. At the Support Services Center, I believe there are, I don't know exactly, two or three print stations where you go to pick up your printing. And so everyone comes to that same consolidated station, much like we do in HCP here where the print room is in the back. Everything prints there and, and people acquire their prints from those very large, less expensive machines. Uh, we have not attacked it out in areas where that's not the case, right? So we have an approach um, workout at Fairmont where people are in those individual offices to go out and say, let's start removing these individual printers and move to the consolidated. But, but that is a much more cost-effective approach to, to utilizing print. Uh, it is. Uh, the, the consumables are cheaper, uh, but under this contract, that's that doesn't really matter to us, right? That matters to Xerox. So they're the ones that they gain advantage by having more printer consolidation and more uh, volume driven because there because there is a volume component of this right. okay. uh, of this contract and and devices they have to repair under the contract and so we're currently we did a lot of consolidation with that support services move and so we're well under the number of devices that were contemplated in this contract and our and kind of our limit of how many we would support so we're we're meeting that uh, part is of it, the contract is it worthwhile to have the discussion about Alameda and San Leandro now or yeah. Well, the, those contracts, we're still, we continually work with Xerox on this, and we, we can't come to terms because they want to adjust those contracts with this joint contract, and we're like, no, we want a contract for those services. Not, we're not renegotiating this contract. We're talking about those contracts. Well, the, the thing it does do is your, your increase your Fitbit steps because you get to go out to... That's what I keep telling people. It's part of our employee <laughs> wellness program. That's right. Employee wellness. So you ought to put that up as one of the benefits. And I will say, uh, I lead by example. I do not have a printer in my office, and I contemplate, do I want to walk all the way to the printer to get this? Because it's not right next to my office. Yep. Because, I mean, it's great to see how much, how, what a decrease there's been in the out-of-network printers. But the uh, volume output of printing is still, still very uh, high. you know, yeah. holding steady. So yeah, and, and print a lot of that is driven by our operations, right? We still print a lot of paper in the clinical operations that we that we perform. You know, patient instructions still get printed. Many of the forms we use uh, still get printed. Um, a forms on demand is a different contract that we have to, where we, we print forms on demand instead of having them all pre-printed, which leads to waste because as soon as you want to change a form, you know, anything that, that has already been pre-printed in an inventory is, is destroyed and so it's uh, that's another way we've gotten at it so some of our images have gone up impressions as it's called through this process because we moved to forms on demand so our spend on pre-printed forms went down uh, that's a standard register contract uh, but our but our images went up but we're still within our boundary limits so it didn't increase our expenses we actually saved money through that process as well is anyone actively engaged in kind of more of a paperless solution yeah, enterprise-wide. <clears throat> Most definitely. That, that's okay. a, a lot of the 
Um, E-fax e is a part of that, right? Because people were literally printing things off to put them in a fax machine to send them to someone else. And now we were able to do that through an e-fax process, especially external to our organization. E-faxing, so we're reducing all that printing. Uh, more forms elect done electronically. If we can collect signatures electronically so we don't have to print a piece of paper to get something signed, simply to scan it back in again. So as we do at registration, it, it is an active process. Part of the EHR selection process includes that what is the forms reduction process that you have in place? How do we eliminate the need for paper in the organization? <clears throat> Any other questions? If not, uh, we'll move, I guess, then to item B. Okay. okay. <clears throat> well, I'm happy to uh, be able to give you a retrospective review of our revenue cycle improvement project. This is a <clears throat> pretty big program. Um, <clears throat> involving lots and lots of people throughout the organization, uh, IT, um, operations, uh, very comprehensive program. Uh, unfortunately, Bernadette couldn't be here tonight. Um, uh, this actually is her one-year anniversary, so I was hoping to give her publicly credit for a lot of the work that uh, she's done for us. But there are, of course, a lot of other people who deserve credit as well. Um, by way of background, um, this really kind of started back in July of 2014, which happened to be my first month here. And um, <clears throat> at the time, uh, those of you who were here may recall that there was quite a bit of financial stress mm -hmm. and uh, the organization was uh, contemplating uh, outsourcing um, a revenue cycle or, or, had, or signing a big contract with a company uh, that doesn't really matter. But it was going to be a very expensive contract, a national company, um, estimated to cost about 20 to $25 million, which was more than um, we actually uh, could afford to spend at the time. Um, after we reviewed that, uh, management made a recommendation uh, that um, we'd like to try to do this internally, uh, using some consulting as needed, uh, but primarily trying to do this internally and uh, trying to achieve about a 15 to $20 million uh, improvement in operations. Um, as this developed, we, we started first with a, a million dollar contract with uh, uh, Cerner Siemens, at the time uh, primarily technology related. Uh, that then morphed into a series of um, projects, and we wound up uh, contracting with Freed Associates, which is a local company that uh, I've done some work with in the past and um, had good results with. So, and, uh, so I'll report on what, what occurred. Um, so far, the, um, the results for the program have been very, very good. Um, the, um, and I, these are the key measures that I look at, things like you know cash, which has gone from about uh, 875,000 collect million collected in one year to uh, uh, 1.3 million, 1.4 million currently. Um, our cash collected has gone up. Um, or so I'm, I'm sorry, I'm looking at daily and average. You can see the numbers there. Uh, days in AR were reduced. And uh, EBU, which is these uh, claims that are hung up in the system, were also brought down. So what that did is it restored the company to profitability, which was good. It uh, gave us cash to pay down the uh, line of credit to the county, so we're now in compliance. And it has um, funded a lot of the strategic initiatives that um, the organization wants to do. So uh, overall, very good return on investment, far exceeding the $20 million uh, initial target. Um, and of course, not all of this was done by Freed. A lot of it was done by a lot of other people in the organization. Um, if we look at just the uh, free contract, which uh, we want to report on, um, so far there have been contracts for stopgap POs signed totaling 
almost $8 million, $7.956. And of that, we've spent about seven. And so, uh, and we're also going to be bringing to you tonight project requests, which are in the next section, uh, totaling about $1.2 million. Now, not all of this is directly related to the RCIP. So what we've done is we've uh, tried to uh, uh, separate RCIP. There's kind of a little bit of a bleed over here. But what we found is when we got into this, there were systemic issues across the organization. Um, and as we identified those, you know, if we couldn't do this internally, we would sign addendums to, to move out into these other areas. So, you know, case management was a perfect case in point, um, anesthesia, uh, the anesthesia module, things like that, and uh, most recently the assessment of the uh, ambulatory access issue, which has now been uh, completed and presented. Um, so what we'll, by context, this is kind of what the spend has been and um, uh, what we're going to be asking for tonight. Um, so um, the first thing is, that the, so the program sort of gravitated from year to year. We started in 2015. And it was really primarily um, uh, uh, revenue cycle redesign. One of the things we identified as we moved on is that we, we lacked key um, competencies in certain positions. And so, of course, we tried to recruit. Uh, but in the interim, we brought people in through this contract to, to fill those positions because, you know, internal management is just absolutely vital to making a program like this work. Uh, but in the first year, uh, you can see that we spent about uh, 2.4 million, and um, uh, we think we returned about 15 on pure revenue cycle. We also, on the bottom there, um, created a uh, contracting department, basically from scratch, and that is the department that Ira uh, currently leads. So that was kind of a non-revenue cycle uh, initiative, but again, we think it was very important to uh, to get done. Uh, and you can see the kinds of things that we were doing in um, 2015. And then in 2016, um, we, you know, continued that. We, we started building out um, specific uh, units inside the uh, billing department, like the specialty billing, doing behavioral health. We put in a denials unit. Uh, you can also see we uh, brought in an interim uh, patient financial services director, um, and uh, a variety of other things. So we spent another 2.26 there, and we think we, uh, of the of the big improvement we have, we've experienced, we think we contribute about 22 million to what uh, Free did. And then we have some non-revenue cycle projects on the bottom: um, anesthesia, system implementation, and Midas, which is supporting uh, case management. Yes. David, you, uh, you you used to bring to us the comparison, and maybe it's in here, and I haven't. I haven't added it up, but used to bring the comparison between what we were contracting out and what we were able to do inside. And I see that you've, you've created these internal things now, mm -hmm. like contracts and, mm -hmm. and some yeah. of the billing issues, et cetera. Yeah. Is there still, what, what's the ratio or what's the, the number that of our contracts compared now compared to where we were three years ago? Has, have we improved in that area? Um, or reduce the contract? You know, I don't know that I can uh, report. Perhaps Ira might be able to, but I, I know that we build into this the contracting process, uh, the objective of uh, keeping these local, bringing them in-house wherever we can, reduce contractors. Um, I can think of four or five people who 
were engaged in the revenue cycle redesign at the, at the initiation of this, who have now been, the contracts have been terminated and gone off and done other things. And we're, of course, actively trying to uh, fill these uh, interim positions so that we can have our own staff in turn. Right, so. right. Uh, at some point, you, maybe you could go back and look at, because I do remember you were really good about bringing forward mm -hmm. that, that, and I want, I think you and your staff ought to get credit for the reduction, and certainly the contracts with IRA has been yeah. so improved. But it would be nice to see the the big contracts and mm -hmm. the which have gone away because mm -hmm. we have now become self-sustaining in various areas. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll, take, I'll bring that back. Thank you. Okay, um, now now we're in fiscal 2017, which is the current year, so um, we don't really have really quantified the return on investment, but. The, the big projects we've done is, I mentioned the ambulatory access redesign. Um, the, we're continuing the uh, interim PFS director. We're actively recruiting for that, but th there are other, um, I actually just kind of w went through everything with uh, Bernadette, Bernadette today, and there's still like four or five key positions that you know have not been filled for a variety of issues. And we're working with human resources on that to uh, you know, address issues and, and, and find competent people. Uh, we've got a, a current project looking at what's called revenue integrity, which is our charge master and charge capture. Um, there's still um, many, many challenges in that area. Um, we're supporting, uh, continuing to support Sheila Lysma in the care coordination function. Um, she's largely been trying to implement the improvement program by herself, but she does need some additional resources. And um, <clears throat> currently we're working with um, facility patient access. This is the department that um, <clears throat> meets with uh, patients when they first come in the door, tries to get them entitled into whatever program they might qualify for. It's a very important function uh, for us because uh, we need to appropriately classify these individuals, these patients, because it drives large dollars in the back end, and if we don't get it right in the front end, it's, it uh, creates a lot of rework. And then a small uh, IT project that's about 1.2 million. Maybe that's what we were asking for. Um, okay, current state. <clears throat> so this is kind of um, the big areas, uh, patient access, revenue integrity, facility billing, profit, care management, ambulatory. There, there are other ones as well. But um, <clears throat> we, have, we have made really good progress in all of these areas. Um, honestly, there is still s such a long way to go. Um, when we started this, it, it wasn't so much that everything was broken. Some of these things just didn't exist uh, because, um, you know, uh, prior to becoming an independent organization, it was part of the county, and the attitude was sort of, well, the county will just, you know, fund all of this. And of course, that's one of the reasons the county wanted us to uh, uh, operate independently is to address these issues, and we're largely putting that in place. Um, there's work to be done in patient access. There's a lot of work to be done in revenue integrity. Um, there's, uh, we're doing pretty good at facility building, but there's some key, key positions to fill. We're really just getting into professional billing, which is physician billing. Right now, we're conducting an uh, assessment of what the opportunities are. Uh, care management continues, and then uh, we mentioned the ambulatory uh, redesign. This is going to be the implementation of the new model. Very complex. There are other areas as well. You know, for example, charge capture system-wide continues to be a huge issue, so we've struggled with how to connect with operating managers and say, you know, it's really important that we do this. 
Um, it's not something that there's a historical, you know, uh, practice of doing that here. Um, uh, clinical documentation is a key. So, for example, many of our residents really don't bother to uh, complete their charts because you know it's just not been the practice. Do you think the charge capture will improve uh, as we implement a new EHR? That will certainly help a lot. That will certainly be a very large component of the EHR program. You also mentioned if, if, if people aren't completing their charting, that's mm -hmm. going to have a huge impact as well on charge yes. capture. So Yeah, and not just charge like capture, but it'll help us on uh, quality measures because if we're doing better job charting, we'll document the higher acuity of the patients, we'll have a higher case mix when we get measured by external organizations based on our experience, uh, morbidity, you know, um, we'll look better compared to the national average. So, so the EHR you're hoping is also going to change physician behavior in terms of their charting and compliance with yes. completing charts. Yes, okay. absolutely. Okay. Um, so some of the things we're, we're looking at to kind of across David, the board. Would you, would you, I'm sorry to interrupt. Would you go back to that issue because we then just so that, so that our anticipation is correct, our expectation, the, the HR system to be implemented so that it does affect it does capture this recording, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is what, two years out? Yes. 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 Okay. But, but there are things we can do in the, in the near term. And we, need to, we need to be changing the processes, changing the culture. Um, <clears throat> we're actively working with uh, the different medical services to get them support, to talk about how they do things, give them tools to capture. We're seeing, we're seeing some increases. Mm -hmm. But... Um, it's, you know, it's kind of a, um, it's a very complex problem. We're working on it. We're making Is there an area that, that you see that recording, that lack of recording in, in, in one area, or is it across the board? How does that look? Where, where um, are you it's, I would say it's across the board with some gaping holes. I mean, clearly we do it better in some departments than others. Uh, but we have, uh, the, you know, medical services that, like zero, so it's a big opportunity. So that's one of the things we're doing is that assessment to say, okay, well, what's happening? Why? What can we do about it? And then you know, implement a corrective plan. And that's the objective for the next this calendar years to get that fixed. And I think you've brought us, uh, you know, information in past meetings where you've actually specified that we've lost six million or so much because mm -hmm. of the non-documentation and things. Mm -hmm. so, it's yeah. getting better, right? I, I remember last. I, I would say that it's getting that. better. I mean, there's. I still get a report every month that shows us uh, how much we wrote off because uh, we didn't get authorizations or you know, some other or a late bill because we didn't resolve the issues and didn't go out on time. And, and is that what you're covering in this patient access? It looks like it's tied in kind of the authorization issue as well. Yes, it is. I want to comment on that, on that documentation piece. The, the clinical documentation improvement program, the CDI program, is starting. Uh, we finally completed contracts and have the people on board. So just this last Monday, the first person arrived. Uh, next week, we have more people coming on to, to work with physicians on completing more complete documentation. So if you, if you look at HIN committee reports or hear from the medical staff that their chart deficiency rate is very low, that's true because the HMP was completed, a discharge ceremony was completed, an opera report was completed. But what may be missing are comorbidities, other complications, that the completeness of the documentation may not be there. We might be treating an illness but have not 
documented as a diagnosis. So we're having all the expense with none of the revenue that comes with it. So that's the improvement in that documentation. One, the new HR helps with that because it helps drive documentation. Uh, the CDI specialist will come in and review charts with physicians in real time and, and coach them on how they can document differently to capture more of those things that are actually happening, the care we are providing. Um, have you studied or do you anticipate that we will move to an environment where we will have a recorder with the doctor in the room who does the recording and the doctor does what one I am told that would increase the number of people that a doctor can see in it and and then access but also your employee costs go up considerably uh, because now you have another person there that you you didn't have before yeah so has there been any conversation about that um, there are a couple of areas where we're talking about that, but we're, we're you know, guarded about giving it to one person because then everybody all of a sudden, well, where's my scribe? Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. It has to be. FTEs. No. No, it has and to what be. What we'd rather do is design the system so that yes. it's relatively easy to get the, the charges in. And this is all for the Highland Poor, just the in, inpatient, right? Are we talking ambulance? Um, this actually covers the um, entire organization, oh. so there have been some aspects that affect Alameda Hospital and San Leandro. Oh. But uh, clearly most of this is at Highland and Fairmont and places like that. Uh, for example... The Profi building, building would be across. Across, the, yeah, across. Yeah. Yeah, for example, one of the great things we've done so far is we're uh, in the process of rebuilding soaring financials so that it has a dedicated physician billing module. And one of the things we've done is we've um, uh, sort of recreated the typical kind of reports that a physician would receive that they've never received. And we can print it out every month and share it with them and say, okay, this is what the system says you did okay, in terms of cases. And it's been amazing because they oh, yeah. paid, wait a minute, I didn't do that case, this person did, and I did 10 of these and you're showing one. What's going on? Which is terrific. I mean, it's just great information because it allows us to determine where the deficiencies in the, mm -hmm. in the system. So it's kind of exciting. It's the kind of thing I get excited. About. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. Um, so uh, clearly, we're working on recruitment. It's been uh, it's very difficult. Uh, in many cases, our salary scales don't really up to market. So we're working with HR on that. Um, there's some work environment issues at times. Um, we, uh, you know, kind of continue to work on this uh, culture of accountability in terms of ensuring people have uh, well-defined performance expectations and uh, they get measured against those. And, uh, managers check, they, they identify problems, they meet with employees. Um, you know, they try to uh, uh, improve the overall level of accuracy in, in the various departments. Um, change management has been a struggle. Uh, very, uh, you know, entrenched culture here, hard to change, but uh, uh, we all struggle with that and we're working hard at it. Um, I think uh, uh, we are making progress. We're getting the right leadership in place doing that. Uh, technology has been an issue uh, that's improving. Um, I mentioned the Soren Financial Rebuild. Uh, we want to install Relay Health, which is a health, healthy access department. And of course, uh, this is all being built into the IT strategic plan that Dave is. Um, and, um, you know, a real big barrier we have on the uh, patient financial service space at Fairmont is it, it's really substandard in a number of ways. First of all, there's not enough space because, for example, we have um, 
the billing for uh, Alameda Hospital outsourced. We'd like to bring that back in-house. No place to put people. Uh, we need to um, add people in certain areas. It's, there's just no place. And the, the building itself is really substandard. It is not, I mean, it's well past its service life. It is, I, I don't want to go through all the details of, of the things that happen there, but it, it's, it's not an environment that we think is uh, conducive. The other thing is that it, um, the layout is not efficient because we have so people too. tucked away in the oh, yeah. crevices everywhere, and we really need to get them into a professional office where certain departments are next to each other, they can see each other, they can communicate. Mm -hmm. Management can, you know, walk the halls, talk to people, and, um, and so, so we're working on a, on a proposal to bring that back, and, uh, which will come to you, of course. Uh, but to get them into a more efficient space that we think will really uh, take them to the next level on, on performance. Um, so future projects, uh, this is beyond what we're talking about tonight, um, that I think we're going to probably need to do. Uh, additional work on revenue integrity on this charge capture issue. Uh, probably additional um, work on the ambulatory redesign implementation. So the idea is that we would start with uh, a partial uh, implementation, sort of clinic by clinic, take a group of the primary care clinics, do those next six months, do another bunch of them, and then come in at the end and do the, um, the specialty care departments. Uh, probably some additional work on uh, pro-fee charge capture, uh, additional work on professional billing, and then maybe some additional work on patient access. And this is just kind of, you know, none of this in, isn't set in stone yet. We just want to give you a heads up. David, on any of these, have you charted out um, any kind of benchmark or anticipated target that you want to reach? No, none of them have those. And, well, I understand they're just projects that you're doing. Yeah. Do you we, have a sense of... Yeah, we actually do that before we embark on anything. We say, what is the ROI? How are we going to measure our success? So I probably could have put that into the presentation. I'm trying to keep it fairly succinct. Can you tell me a little bit about what the ambulatory redesign is? Yeah. Um, What's included in that? Okay, so um, these these are, have to do with our ambulatory clinics, which the federally qualified health centers as well as some of them that don't technically qualify to be an FQHC, but they they look like a doctor's office. And um, it's about a it's about a hundred million dollars of our spend, so it's a big operation. The um, uh, we have not achieved the access standards that we've been looking for. We want to expand that. We're looking way for ways to make our uh, providers uh, more productive, make better use of their time so we can see more patients. Uh, we did an assessment of that. Uh, it really started with a look at, well, what's the what are the front-end barriers in terms of scheduling and registration? It really expanded beyond that to... Um, the need for a complete reorganization and a redesign of the clinical module. And so that has been received by um, Dr. Jamaluddin and Dr. Baberia, who's been appointed to lead that division. Uh, she is in charge of this, and she's requesting these funds tonight to start that implementation. Um, and so we're actually now, right now, putting in place the new organization structure and then we intend to, uh, she intends to go in and introduce a new clinical model. Uh, also as part of that, we're going to redesign how uh, scheduling, registration, authorization works to kind of clarify accountability and fit, make it fit better with uh, the new model. So 
What metrics are you going to be using to measure success? Um, <clears throat> certainly, number of uh, number of visits, uh, denial per, per, per physician per, per physician per day, uh, staff ratios of uh, support staff to physician, um, denial rates, uh, wait times in particular, things like that. Most of the next two available that you know. So, if I can ask a question of Dr. Jamaluddin, I know that Freed was supposed to finish the report in December. Would you, at some point in time, present that to the board, just a summary of what the ambulatory um, report, like assessment findings and recommendations are? Sure. sure. The, uh, I mean, uh, as, as David said, uh, we have uh, currently uh, no show rate and cancellation, which is making the operational efficiency uh, affected. Plus, we have uh, workflow for the patients and workflow for the authorizations. Uh, and plus, we talked about documentation. So, uh, Palav started a couple of weeks, and she has been like rounding on all our FUSC. I've been rounding on the FUSC, and then we want to have uh, more efficient operation, more patient patient friendly and uh, uh, better better uh, workflow in the, in the PSCs. I assume you're also looking at the coding to see how your E&Ms are flowing, right? Yes, yes. I mean, the coding and the documentation. Did, did I read that the no-show rate was about 25%? Is that what you said? Uh, not 25%. Uh, well, it can go up to 25% in certain clinics. That's correct, yes. Um, yeah. And how does that fare in relationship to a national average or a state average? What, well, what does in, that look in like? In safety net uh, uh, systems, uh, it is high. It is in the 20%. Uh, but uh, So are we higher than most safety net systems? Uh, we, like in, in my previous job, it was around that, and we lowered it in, in clinics to the teens and even lower than that. So, uh, it, you know, it has to go clinic by clinic and try to communicate with the patients. And then when there is no show rate, you have to use this slots to bring in, walk in. So there are ways to, to go around this. Uh, I am confident in our patients' population from practicing here that we can improve this. Uh, I, I think uh, we, we have opportunities here to, to, to improve this, this number. The, the longer the wait time for an appointment, the higher the, yes, the show rate. Absolutely. You know, I tell them if it is more than one month, that means we are closed for business. You know, uh -huh. just, it's, uh, we, need, we need to bring the patients within two weeks. So we are setting up targets for different clinics in terms of the next available, and uh, we're trying to, to meet those targets. Um, and I think that concludes the uh, presentation. And uh, next up is going to be contracts. I'm going to ask um, Ira to join us as well in case there are questions. So, um, moving on then to tab three contract approvals. as a group or uh, take one motion on this to approve. If anybody has any questions, we can talk about them individually.
an opportunity to look at the yep. information provided. Yes. Any questions, any items for discussion? Is the, uh, I'm sorry, I, I had some on the lease. Is that in this list, the, the Fairmont lease? East um, Bay, I, I mean, believe East, it yes, is right at the me, bottom. Me. It's the, uh, the, East, East, the East bottom Mont. of the East, schedule. Eastmont, yeah. Eastmont. Jay, could right. we just pull that one and then uh, that was the only ones I had a question. Okay. All right. So we'll have a discussion on item J. Oh, wait. Oh, well. Uh, hmm? I'm sorry. It was, uh, I'll look at my notes. I don't know if it was. I think it's the Alameda, uh, at Alameda, that was the one that I had some. The, uh, the lease? Uh, Let's see, we have there, your start. Uh, I'm getting myself confused. I look like an idiot here. I okay. apologize. Um, you were creating six new, new rooms. Okay. And is that at the Alameda or is that Eastmont? No, no. This is this is this is the the business plan for the primary care providers for Alameda. Okay, oh, that's uh, that's the one that that's the one I had yeah. questions on. Well, we can we can certainly speak to that as well. Okay, that, then that's not included in this. No, that's, that's a this separate is later, item. Later okay. for discussion. Yeah, then I'm then I'm plan. good. Sorry for the stupidity here. Okay, so I will entertain a motion then. Do I have a motion to approve? I move. Second. And and just to be clear, so this is a motion to approve. Uh, items 3A through 3J? Yeah. Okay. Hey, it's been regularly moved and second. Any further discussion? All those in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? All right. Moving on then to tab 4, operating reports. Uh, okay. Dave, you're on again. All right. I guess I'll go first. Or... Okay. Okay. Yep, you are first. Uh, and so if oh, you're, if you're, uh, okay. <laughs> if you're following in your package, it's uh, starting on page 84 is the, uh, the material. Um, so this is through the month of January, so seven months for this fiscal year. Uh, happy report profitability, which is slightly below budget. Um, discharges remain a little below uh, expectations, but we have a higher length of stay, higher CMI, and actually a higher average daily census for acute care in prior year and clinic visits have improved but not, not quite as much as we expected. We continue to, to experience very favorable net revenue, uh, both net patient service revenue and supplementals. Uh, expenses continue to run over budget, 5% uh, year to date. Uh, I've, we've reported on some of these projects. We talked about ambulatory access redesign. Uh, benchmarking is proceeding. Uh, Luis and I are leading that and we're meeting with um, a vendor. Uh, actually next week to uh, talk about implementation of that. We're not ready to talk about it publicly yet. Uh, mentioned physician charge capture that's doing well. Soaring uh, financial rebuild. Uh, contracting, happy to announce that we did sign with Cigna and we're expecting it very shortly. And uh, Luis can report on the uh, uh, registry uh, program when he gets back. There's questions about that. Um, this is our net revenue and uh, for the year to date. So, um, 378 million net patient service. Last year was 339. That's about a 10% increase. Very good performance. Supplementals uh, are up from 176, not as much, but above budget. And so in total, we are 4.8% favorable, and we have good collection ratios. So this is all 
working, uh, a lot of people putting efforts into this, uh, but good results overall. Uh, moving to expenses, uh, here's the total expense trend going all the way back to July of 2015. See, it's kind of been uh, inching up, and then here's paid FTEs uh, inching up. And then here's the um, actual expense section year to date. So we have a, here's the 5.1% negative variance, or about $26 million. Uh, you can see last year we had spent about 490 This year we're up to 540 So, you know, $50 million higher than last year. And then the big variances we're seeing are right in here on registry, which we've talked about, uh, contracted positions, which has to do with the traditions, um, contracts at um, uh, John George, and a few other minor variances. That's what we're doing. Uh, paid FTEs have increased from 39.12 to 41.18. Uh, FTE ratio has increased, and the comp ratio is actually about on budget because the revenue uh, has offset the uh, growth in expenses. Okay. Are, is the registry number in the FTEs? Do you count that in Yes, there? we do. We do, okay. we do count registries in, in FTEs. Uh -huh. okay. um, last month we provided you with the um, report by facility. So this is an updated report for January. Uh, you can see if somebody's asking you how are San Leandro and Alameda doing, you can say from a system perspective they have positive contribution. Uh, that's true for most, uh, even ambulatory is pretty close. And then we have a new report for you tonight, which is the same information except by business unit instead of by facility. So the total is the same. Uh, looks like I left off operating income for some reason, that's my fault. Um, but you can kind of get an idea of how each of the, uh, the business units are done. So for example, acute care has all the acute care hospitals, if you're interested in post-acute care, by Richard Espinoza. Look at this number. Uh, you can see system support costs broken out separately. So useful information if you want to uh, get into that level of detail. Uh, switching to the balance sheet, a few items to note. The, um, the days and accounts receivable right here have inched up a little bit. Uh, the reason for that is we had a lot of patient activity in January. Very busy month, revenue went up, so receivables went up just a little bit. I'm not particularly concerned about that. Uh, net uh, accounts payable, however, going up. I am a little concerned about that, so we're having a discussion about why that's occurring. Is it is it taking too long to get invoices through the system? Or what's going on? So we'd like to see that down around 45. What's the best practice for you for net days in New York? Um, best practice would be about 50. 50. 50. Five zero. Realize when we started the revenue cycle project, we were like 120. So we've, we've yeah. come way down. And actually, below, uh, at the end of June last year, we were below 60. We had a systems glitch that put us up, and we're trying to work that down before we get to this June. How do you pri prioritize the payables? Um, <clears throat> it's not a matter of needing to prioritize them. We have enough money to pay everybody. It's, it's a matter of... Uh, getting the invoices through the system. I was thinking more of from a, I knew we had the money, I was yeah. thinking more of from from a, a community and political perspective because I remember when we were yeah. in those hundred that yeah. 
there were calls from from supervisors who, in fact, their merchants would call them about not being able to be paid right. contractors, and so yeah, and we we certainly pay attention to local vendors. I get uh, every week I get a report that ties to these numbers right here that shows me what's in the system waiting to be paid, and I can look at it by individual vendor and see where they are. And I, I peruse that and say, well, how come this person isn't paid? How come that person isn't paid? Now, the, this Thank number... Thank you for doing that, David. I think, I think that's important for our community. Well, you're welcome. It's, it's really a pleasure to do it. Uh, and I realize that 53 days uh, includes a lot more than just $13.5 because total accounts pay are about 45 or $50 million. And those are what are called accruals. These are invoices we haven't yet received. Um, but what we found is, you know, we have an issue with getting invoices through the system and into the department to pay them. Because they might be sitting on somebody's desk waiting for a signature. Or, you know. uh, so we're trying to, to expedite that as well. So how are you tracking those invoices? Make sure you're getting them back in a timely fashion. Do you have some mm. sort of system in place that uh, we, we do, out a report we, to say these are all outstanding and yeah. who has them and yeah, who hasn't? Yeah, we, we do. We have, a, we have an accrual system, so we pretty much know which contract should be out there. But what we don't know is if, if something new has been done that we don't know about and it's sitting out there, then you know, we won't know about that. And occasionally we get a, we get a call from someone to say, wait a minute, you know, I haven't been paid. And we're like, okay, well, we didn't know you had a contract. You know, it's relatively old. I mean, that does happen <laughs> occasionally. That's one of the things we try to fix with this um, uh, new process. Are there, um, you know, ways to tie some of these aging to SBUs to see, like, which ones have Oh, we, we probably could. I mean, if, we, if I looked at one, I could know where it is. We, we don't classify them that way because it kind of goes into a big, big, uh, you know, summary. And thank you for putting the percentages, by the way. That's, that's yeah. really helpful. Yeah, that's okay. Okay, all right. Uh, now, this is um, something you have not seen before, so this is new. Uh, this is something I spend a lot of time on. You might uh, uh, recall that we do a, a cash forecast by week out about two years. And so one of the things we do is we look at all of the supplemental payments that are either coming in or going out. And as you can see there's some pretty big dollar swings here uh, for different kind of programs. And one of the reasons I've put this on is everyone's good education, but there have been some changes that affect the cash forecast, okay, that I think you need to be aware of. So the first thing is um, these two and this one, this first three in yellow, kind of go together. And what this is, is the uh, state has come back to all of the designated public hospitals in the state and say, you know, we paid you um, what's called disproportionate share hospital reimbursement for not only your entire operations, but for your federally qualified health centers. Okay. And they've been doing that for years. No problem. They said, we think that was a mistake. We think you're already paid for that because we give you this FQHC rate and you shouldn't need to be paid for that. So we want that money back. Wow, yeah. So this actually has turned into a, a big to-do. Um, we are, I mean, the health system is actually involved in a um, sort of class action lawsuit with the state over this, arguing that. Um, and we thought that um, the state would sort of just put that on hold, but they actually have come back and said, 
and we'd like you to pay us back for this one particular year, even though you're litigating. So is that for, for, <laughs> for all the hospitals in the DFQHC? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. So it's, it's a so fairly it's significant dollar amount, I would assume, throughout yeah. the state. So yeah. Must be a, yeah. Pretty yeah. big. Yeah. Now we we got some of this money through what's called an IGT. Got this twenty-seven. And so when we give it back, we also give it back through an IGT. So we have to, like a reverse IGT. So we have to first make these two payments. And then a few weeks later, we get this money I, back. I'm, what's an IGT? Intergovernmental transfer. It's, it's, a, it's sort of like a federal matching program where we have to put some money up and get money back. Uh, now, this was a surprise. So um, it's one I mentioned, uh, I think, at the board meeting that I had a good productive meeting with the county auditor controller. Uh, I briefed him. This is one of the things I briefed him on. He actually saw this complete slide and has it. And uh, uh, asked him to, uh, uh, first of all, to uh, let us draw these funds to pay them back, which he consented. And second was uh, to participate in this reverse IGT. So he had to sort of front all 27. And then when this money comes back, he'll get that. Okay. Uh, now, what else? So. Um, Another issue you should be aware of is this one, uh, MCE to cost for 2016. Uh, that's last year. So what this does is the uh, state provides funds to the managed care plans uh, who then give it to us and it is intended to ensure that we get paid our cost on the Medi-Cal expansion population. Okay. The problem is they don't give us the calculation of that, and we really don't know what it is until we get it. It's kind of opaque for whatever reason. It goes through a lot of hands, and in many cases it gets negotiated. Uh, so for 2016, I believe we recorded revenue of about $36 million thinking that's a nice conservative number that we think we'll get that was reported last year. Uh, last week, we received information that indicated that the payment could be 60 to $70 million. Okay. So that presents an opportunity not only to start booking some of that as revenue this year, but also it changes our cash forecast. Now, the problem with that is both the amount and the timing is uncertain. So we had in our uh, forecast that we were going to uh, receive uh, that $36 million around April or May, mm -hmm. um, which is one of the reasons that our projection on the net negative balance is looking good. The projection will look better if it's 60, but if it gets postponed till after June 30th, then we have a problem. So I've explained that to the county auditor as well. We will, I think, have more information on that in a month. There are some things we can do to, uh, you know, address it if it becomes a problem. I will certainly let you know and let the county know if that becomes a problem. But um, so there's kind of a, a best case, worst case. Uh, also related to that, here some of the other uncertainties. Um, this is the MCC to cost for the year we're in, fiscal 17. We're currently booking $42 million at $42 million rate for the year. We're hearing that we might get a similar amount because the state says apparently they want to cover both years pretty close to each other. Okay. 
So what that means from a cash forecasting system is between now and June, we could get a low estimate of zero or a high estimate of 120. So it's a pretty big range for cash <laughs> forecasts. <laughs> it's a pretty big range. And then another um, wild card is, um, you know, I told, I explained about DISH for, for 14. This is the calculation for 15. It's a pretty big number. It gets lower in future years. Uh, they haven't said anything about that, but there, there is, you know, a chance that they come back at some point. So, well, give us this money too. They, they could do this in before June. We don't know. I, we, we doubt it. We put it in July, but you know, you just don't know. So that makes the cash forecast minus 40 to plus 120 to 140. So it's just like, whoa. <laughs> David, could you talk a little bit about, you know, I, I know that that um, St. Rose is is needing some some money, and it may be one time there hasn't been a conversation whether or not it's going to be ongoing dollars, but how how does and where do those dollars come from? I know they're coming from us, so how how is that moved around? Um, there, if, there if is this a, occurs. There if is a occurs. revised proposal that is under discussion that would reduce our current year health pack compensation by about a little over $3 million. Okay, so that is built into the forecast. I didn't put it in here because it's relatively in the big scheme of things. Um, you know, so not, it's staggered over two years. Right? Yeah. But but if if the if it's zero that we get back the three million is yeah. becomes a more significant number. Sure, I mean it's all obviously three million is a lot of money. It counts, but used to me. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. Um, now that being said, I can tell you that I've met with uh, St. Rose, and uh, one of the issues we have as well, if you're going to ask for our funds, we we kind of want to know what your long-term viability plan is. And, they're participating with me in doing kind of an assessment of um, what it would take really to restore them to long-term financial viability. And it's our hope that once we complete that analysis, we're doing pretty quickly, we can then present to this um, committee that's um, being brought together by um, Supervisor Baye make a joint recommendation. Well, I ask that question because I'm going to need to raise it at the board meeting at some point. Um, and I want to make certain that I'm a little more clear on how those dollars... It, uh, I, I recognize that the population in that area needs a hospital. So I, I, it's not that I, I think we should see that thing go under. I, mm -hmm. That's not my position at all. But I really want to make certain that a corporation that, in fact, is a profit-making corporation um, has accountability to that community so that the dollars that are public dollars that are going there to support that, that um, there is an understanding of the profits that go to a corporation and how the money coming from our entity to support that entity. And so that's hard for me to explain yeah. to my community, you know, when those questions get raised. So I want to make certain I, I yeah. well, at we're, some we're point, hoping, understand that a little bit better. Yeah, we're hoping that this analysis um, 
we'll better clarify that and we'll um, kind of lay out the alternatives for long-term financial viability. Um, we did an internal analysis of St. Rose and felt that if they were to be associated with a um, county-type organization, such as either the county directly or us, that their reimbursement could increase by as much as $15 million a year. Oh, uh -huh. Now, that may not be sufficient to solve their problem because they have uh, long-term seismic issues with their facility, but it's a, it's a, it's a discussion. Uh, we have to talk about what other changes might have to occur um, to, uh, to meet those long-term needs. Given that, it looks like it's going to take much longer, and I know they're, they're needing this, this one-year help. So is when we begin to think about that, there should be some kind of stipulation that, that this is not an ongoing dollar yeah. from us, but yeah, rather... Yeah, my, my understanding is that the current uh, support package would be a year uh, and that we'd be discussing what the long-term might look like. Certainly before we agreed to a long-term, we'd want to have an understanding. Mm -hmm. So during that year, this is just a short-term, yeah. interim bridge. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, well, I hope this was education. Very good. Uh, yeah. David, both those payments were made in February, the, what, the one yes. that the county yeah, the, did those are done. Yeah, those are done. And what's the likelihood that uh, this class action suit is going to be successful? Well, I mean, I know it's hard to make. Yeah, we, we think, it, you know, we have a very good case for it, uh, and it's proceeding. Yes, and so... Um, Using words, you know, you know, sort of carefully here. Um, you know, we think that the um, the litigation is is proceeding um, in a way that you know gives us some confidence that it's going to be successful. This is probably the best way to put it. It's a good case. Okay, I'm nearing the end of mine. So that was really background for this slide, which is, you know, given that this could be off by 140 million dollars. <laughs> This is this is my current projection. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Very good. I'm gonna pass That's it. why you don't worry about the three million when you're talking about one hundred and forty yeah. Okay. Uh, so my report was in your packet. Uh, it is fairly brief tonight. I don't have any slides supporting it because it was just really talking about two things. We continue the EHR uh, selection process. Uh, Next Wednesday, the RFP uh, will be sent out to both Cerner and Epic on our planned schedule. Uh, it is a massive document uh, with uh, extensive hours from staff and our consultants built into that to, to get the requirements right. Uh, and so Foley has delivered much of the terms and conditions of what we want to see in a final contract in it. Uh, Lidos has worked with our staff to develop all of the, uh, the features and functionality we want to ensure that we have across our continuum of care. So it's it's everything from our uh, ambulatory clinics to our post-acute activities and everything in between. All the de physical departments, uh, ancillary departments that support all of that, all of that is included in that RFP. And so they are massive documents. Uh, the vendors have three weeks to respond, so we'll see those back on April 3rd. Um, and so, uh, yeah, roughly three to four weeks, whatever that is. Whatever between March 8th and April 3rd is, that's the duration. Uh, and so we're, we're on track, on schedule, everything is falling into place to hit those dates, and we're very happy with that. Uh, great stewardship from Foley and Lardner leading us um, in this process, and, and great input into the process, right, of how uh, Foley is guiding us through how do we be successful with this, 
what do we want to ensure that we do now to be ready later, and what, how do we need to think about our future plans to be successful with implementation. So uh, good, good leadership from them. How many pages? Um, a lot. <laughs> I was just reviewing. Just the terms themselves are over 100 pages. Uh, and the RFP, I think there is 38 sections or more of, of the sections of functionality that need to be addressed. It, it's a, it is a massive document. And it will all be sent electronically and not printed. And uh, Dave, what's the, uh, you just mentioned it and I blanked, what is the turnaround time from the time you get it? How much time do you? Have? Yeah, so so we'll get them back on April 3rd. Then we have through, uh, our, our review period then goes for uh, all of April and May uh, okay, in, in scoring that RFP. In the meantime, we have a drafted script for the demonstrations that occur. And so the vendors will be on site uh, for three days each uh, to, to demonstrate their product to kind of show us how they've answered the responses to the to the RFP. Okay. So show us the workflows that, that, how does it work for the ED or for the inpatient unit or an ambulatory, how does that patient flow through the system and what's the providers and nurses and techs interaction with the system to achieve the outcomes we need. Mm -hmm. So we're not prescriptive on what they do in that uh, demo, meaning what button they click and how they get there, but the out, we wanna see this outcome, right? So we've got this patient with this condition and we want this outcome, show us how you achieve that specific to what we've built within the RFP, so it's consistent with they're demonstrating what we've asked them to respond to. Uh, there's a scoring algorithms that adds that all together. There's a reviews of the, the RFP response itself in terms of terms, uh, payment terms, prices, uh, terms and conditions that all come into that scoring algorithm along with the feature functionality uh, offerings from a hosting standpoint. All of that together adds up to a, a score, which will then be used in the determination process by the uh, EHR core committee, which was identified that I talked about, uh, really consisting of the three of us um, plus others uh, on that committee that'll that'll kind of bring this to consensus to to a recommendation to the IT steering committee and then to the board uh, with where we think we should go. No, good. I'm glad to you, April third. For some reason, I thought it was mid-April, and I thought that then it would shrink the time that you all had. For, yeah, we we. Uh, we We've essentially stacked the process because normally what you would do, you'd do the, uh, you'd send out the RFP, get the response, then you'd have your demos after you've reviewed the RFP to see what you want to have. So we've kind of overlapped a bit um, because because we've already written the scripts for the demos. Uh, we don't need to wait for the RFP response to have those, and so that's why we've been able to condense that time period more with the leadership of Foley and Lidos to help us with that process. Uh, we think it's a extremely comprehensive process, and we'll have a an outstanding uh, product and decision that we make at the end of this time period. You, do you foresee any difficulty with these two vendors responding to the RFP oh, in that time frame? We don't. We've been in communication with them already. They know it's coming. Uh, they know the time frames for it. Uh, they've worked with Foley before, so they know what to expect. They worked with Lidos before, so they know what to expect. In general, they know what to expect, right, because this isn't their first rodeo. Uh, they've been through this before. So, no, we think they're a um, good response from the vendors highly engaged in the process now. The, the HIMSS conference, which is the national conference for health IT, uh, was last week or the week before, and our people were there to discuss with both vendors where we're at in the process, what's coming, to kind of grease the skids for that process. So secondly, I just I, I put in the report, but I just want to mention it. We, we had conditions where our systems failed, uh, but yet it was not noticed by anyone because our redundancy worked like it was supposed to. Uh, and so in, in both of these cases where we have, we have dual paths of connectivity, 
and when one path fails, the other path is designed to be able to handle the entire load and, and not see degradation services, and they worked exactly like they were supposed to. Uh, and so we were happy about that. Congratulations. We think we can still improve it and make it better because there were still, if a single point of failure happened, we could have lost that, and so we want to build in more redundancies so there's not even uh, two single points of failure to bring around. We want uh, four or six or eight points of failure before we lose anything. But we were, we're very happy about that. Very good. Any other questions for Dave? No? All right. If not, we will move on to business planning and report on activities. Sorry, I think that's you're up, right? Thank you. Uh, today, I'll be uh, presenting a business case uh, need for a primary care physician medical office in the Alameda service area. But before I give you, my, give you our, my presentation, I want to introduce a staff member who's been critical to helping pull this business plan together, both from the comprehensive market analysis, as well as pulling the pro forma together. This is in development of the SBU business plan. If you all recall, earlier we had come to you with the model for business planning. So I want to introduce Rania Alyssa, who's in, this, in our staff here. She uh, is the SBU business manager for ambulatory services. So, um, the business case need, I'll walk you through, first of all, the market analysis, which sets the stage for the need for primary care physicians in these two zip codes. Uh, after that, I'll give you uh, an idea of the proposed model that we're considering, and a couple of options that are out there in terms of the structure of the model, and then, which leads us to the pro forma, and then some recommendations. So the um, area we're looking at is the Alameda service area, which is really two zip codes. And when we did a market assessment, um, these were some key highlights from it. One is that uh, it's a reasonably sized geography, you all uh, know this, and it's growing at about 5% over the next five years, so there's moderate growth there. Um, the piece that speaks to the need for primary care physicians there is that we did a supply-demand analysis. So we look at the current supply of primary care physicians, not just ours, but anyone else that's practicing out of those two zip codes, mm -hmm. and match that up against the demand of the population that's residing in those two zip codes. When we did this analysis, um, it showed that we would need at least 7.4 physicians to adequately serve uh, these two zip codes. And we, so we have a need for that. And it's expected to grow to at least 10 physicians in the next um, uh, five years, or less than five years. Now, when we delve a little deeper to understand what is the makeup of this physician population there, we know that um, more than 70% uh, of the physicians there are in affiliated networks. And um, when actually uh, Rania called each one of those providers over the holidays to see if they would accept Medi-Cal, and she found her analysis showed 54% of these physicians are not accepting Medi-Cal patients. So that this, again, adds to the earlier analysis that I spoke about, just matching the supply and demand, that there is a need here. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to that, we know that AHS lost a, uh, pr a provider in the service area, which left a need for uh, some of the patients that this provider was seeing to have a primary care provider there. Um, and lastly, we know that our hospital there has seen some declining volumes, and uh, we feel that the lack of a robust primary care base is adversely impacting HSS's ability to uh, also gain primary care, um, I mean, commercial contracts. So this is really the um, highlight. These are the highlights of the market analysis that we did. 
So our proposed approach is that, um, as you all know, our strategic plan calls for AHS moving over the next three years to a population health model. So this is considering that we know the importance of building a primary care base and having that base to uh, address the needs of the population even before they need to enter the hospital. And so our philosophy would be that we would integrate this model um, uh, with the population health guidelines that are set forth in our strategic plan, and we would also be addressing the social determinants of health. I'm sorry. I got carried away, and I have not been keeping up with the slides, so I apologize. <laughs> sorry. So the physician staffing model that we're proposing to start off with is a very, very conservative one. It doesn't address the need immediately. We're saying at least today we need two physicians uh, in this geography. Um, and we would hire them, we would leverage the uh, focused practice management approach in partnering with Alameda Health Partners. And we would hire those two physicians through Alameda Health Partners and set this up as a primary care medical office. Um, now, would you be looking for family practice or internal medicine? Have you thought which would be the best provider to have in there? Uh, when we took this to the AHP board, uh, there were a lot of recommendations. I think this would be a blend of internal medicine, primarily. When you look at the demographics, there's a supplemental slide which shows you the demographics of this patient population. It's squarely between 20 and 60. So there's a range there. So internal medicine, uh, family practice, a combination, whichever we can hire, uh, would be the blend. Um, it takes time to get primary care physicians hired. Um, one of the recommendations was also to consider looking at a geriatrician. However, we feel that the, uh, the numbers, the, even though the, the Medicare mix is higher in those two zip codes, it doesn't necessarily warrant at this point to hire a full-time geriatrician. In that, uh, Geriatricians are almost impossible to find in this market right now. Well, we have some internal capacity for that, I think, mm -hmm. out here too, right? Mm -hmm. So the location of this um, clinic would be uh, a space that we currently have in Marina Village, and it has six exam rooms. And I heard uh, Trustee Lawrence say that she had a question on that, so I'm happy to pause here and answer your question, or I can keep moving and Keep come moving, back. And, and I will okay. come to it. Thank okay. Um, and we would anticipate, um, if we were to put this plan in fruition, we would start, uh, the hiring of physicians is really the limiting factor in terms of timeline. And once we do that, we would commence operations sometime early in the fiscal year, next fiscal year. So when we look at the structure of setting this up, uh, there are really two models we could be considering. As you all know, our wellness centers are FQHC, and that's the setup that they have. Uh, we are proposing that this model be a non-FQHC, primarily because it's just two physicians to start off with. And secondly, when we look at the pro forma, which we will in a minute, both models break even, though there's no question that the FQHC model gives you more um, in terms of contribution margin. We do make up a lot in terms of ancillary revenue uh, from the, uh, the volume that these two physicians would generate. And also, the timeline of the timing of this is critical. It just takes a while to get in scope, um, and uh, we could be considering that. So our approach is let's get this started, and then we would work with the county and um, uh, look to see what the options were for FQHC. Because um, uh, there are two options there. That we would be looking at either a 330 um, H, which is a homeless grant. Uh, again, this is not a homeless population primarily that we're serving. Uh, the mix, the pair mix here is primarily Medi-Cal and Medicare uh, and some commercial. 
Uh, so, but again, uh, it's not out of the realm that, you know, we could consider this being under the 330H, or it could be under the 330E uh, option, um, which is, uh, E is, I think, F, I'm, maybe I'm paraphrasing, I believe it's everyone. <laughs> yes, it's everyone. Okay. Yes, it's section 330E, but it's everything, so it's not to a specific population. So H is homeless and E is rest. And, and you know, one more point that you know should go back. If you go, just go back one slide there, Ishwari. I mean, one of the issues that also has to be considered with regard to uh, you know using the FQHC model are the governance requirements. And so, if you think back to what we did in terms of establishing the the homeless uh, healthcare for the homeless commission as a uh, joint co-applicant board under our 330H grant. So, if we were to have this particular clinic, you know. If it were able to fit underneath that, then you could satisfy the governance committee because it's already there. If we establish it as a different type of FQHC, then we would have to meet the governance requirements. And the primary issue there is that that uh, facility would have to have its own independent governing board, and that governing board would have to be made up of 51% or more of individuals who are receiving services you know, from that organization. So, you know, that's a further sort of limiting issue in terms of, you know, what it might look, it's not, you know, it, it doesn't, uh, you know, remove it as an option, but it certainly is a significant consideration that would have to be factored in. Is there a, a prohibition to go, once we get it going, to go back and, and then apply? No. no. So we can move forward and then analyze and then, and then decide later? Correct. Thanks. Which is consistent with the recommendations that we were proposing. So if you look at the pro forma, we did both models just to see how the financial uh, picture would shake out. And this is really very conservative. So um, if you recall, we built some assumptions in here. The earlier discussion, we talked about the no-show rate. We, we built in a higher no-show rate of 25%. We looked at the available um, pool of patients that are in this geography that we know can be assigned. Um, and then we built the model based on the two physicians and, and also the staffing that they would need, which is a primary care physician staff of two medical assistants, half a practice manager, and a, an executive assistant, and then the other operating expenses. Uh, you see, uh, the difference in the revenues is because of the FQHC billing structure and the non-FQHC billing structure. But primarily this model, if you look at it from an AHS perspective, the ancillary uh, revenue that's generated from two physicians practicing is significant. And that in itself would help us break even um, year three. Now, year one, if you look at the number of encounters we put in there, it really speaks to about 4.7 per physician per day, which is really low. Mm -hmm. But again, we wanted to build it in a conservative fashion versus overstating it, knowing that to start, start and commence operations, there's a ramp-up time that takes to bring these patients in and set up the office and get going. Now, ideally, I would hope to see us break even and get to what is written here as year three a lot sooner because it's doable now. We know that we have the patient volumes. It's a question of uh, setting up the practice and get, and, and, and get going. Uh, mine was a, kind of a throwaway question. It just looks like your capital expenses was was under underrated in my view. But 
Um, the capital expenses are mainly to um, TI, the space that we currently lease. So the space is available. It has six exam rooms. So there isn't... It already has exam rooms? Yes. Oh. Yes. Yes, so it's an old a space that the old bone and, uh, the bone and joint center uh, clinic, I should say, was using. So that's oh. vacated now. So we have that space to start you know, tomorrow, but we have to do that, some re That completely changes my, I thought they were brand, when I, I thought they were brand new rooms with, that we would have to, okay. And the cost that we built in here was to get the next-gen licenses for the IT component so they can be integrated into our system. And so that part flows, and that's the next-gen license is significantly what's built into the capital expense. And some of that is also the TI. That'll take two. How much TIs? I can, um, it's, it's actually, it's minimal. In fact, one of the things that we're working through in this space, and, and one of the, just a, a point of correction there in the, the space, it, it's identified as 4,700 square feet. Mm -hmm. the, the clinic space itself is only about, uh, about 2,500 uh, square feet. That space, as they mentioned, was previously used. It was an office, a clinic space. Uh, so the TIs that we're working through right now, I'm actually trying to negotiate those as part of the lease renewal. Right now we're under a month-to-month -month agreement mm -hmm. under that lease, and we're looking at renegotiating that, expanding the space, and building in some TIs as part of that. So we're looking at about, uh, as it relates to, you know, just carpeting, uh, so flooring, patch paint, uh, so minor cosmetics, we're probably thinking that, you know, Thirty to forty thousand dollars in in, in uh, physical space, um, you know. So, so it was an ortho space previously. It used to be uh, an ortho clinic. It was a bone and joint ortho clinic. So again, it's got the six exam rooms. They're all, uh, you know, adequately sized. You know, which would be great for this type of space. Um, and and it's got a small waiting area, a work area for uh, the, the staff. Casting room probably. Uh, no. No. So it's just got the six exam rooms total, uh, and uh, they did the work in there. So, again, it's, it's, it's well-suited for this. The, the work is cosmetic in nature, and like I said, we're thinking it's going to be a small portion of that expense. You so, do, huh? Yeah. So there's a possibility. I mean, I think, I just think it's like has to happen, right? It's, it's, we need to have that presence in Alameda, and it would lift are inpatient and in every in every way, but year two, year three, do you see us go up to like we you're kind of estimating for two, for all three years? Yes, and and, and then beyond that we would need more because they exceed the panel size that we would recommend. So you don't see us increasing the panel size in year three or anything like that. We could, but this is again a conservative model. So if we were to if this is successful and we start off and take a you know small pieces at it, then we would probably need more physicians, but then it depends. Um, and we have the capacity over there with six exam rooms, could you, like, is what would be, you know, with the space there is? Yeah, you can, uh, you can also put uh, PA or NP if needed, you know, so we can increase the capacity as such. Mm -hmm. we, we have been seeing an increase in the number of uh, medical patients in Alameda Hospital, and, um, you know, we have problem finding them primary care and the insurers are also very interested in having primary care but there's 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 room I mean as, as, yeah. as far as six exam rooms so so the math equation here is you're looking at two exam rooms per provider yeah. right so if we've got two providers that we're bringing in initially 
technically you can you can manage the, the the panel sizes within those four exam rooms with room for expansion and growth. And as we start seeing that, and if it happens sooner than three years, great, we have the, the, the capacity. capacity However, once you get beyond that, then the physical limitations of the space would have to be considered as we look at continued growth. Yeah. Have you considered physician extenders as well? Not at this stage, I think. Uh, the workforce model in physician extender is very effective, but as a startup here, I think, uh, I mean, we will consider it, you know, I think it is a very good idea, but we have to really start and see how we'll go, yeah. And, and I guess the question I have, knowing the difficulty in recruiting primary care right now, mm -hmm. who's going to provide coverage? I mean, if you find you have one provider and you're still kind of months away from bringing on your second provider, how is the coverage issue going to work? Uh, we have to look uh, into uh, our system, how we can do this. I mean, we, we, uh, uh, we, we have been dealing with this issue exactly, you know, in our FQAC, so we can find ways and solutions about this, you know, just like not to have uh, lack of coverage in case of vacation or illness, yeah. Our ideal state preference would be to get both physicians in at the same time because yeah, that yeah. makes a, it's a sell for both those physicians that they're hiring. So they have coverage and they're a group, I mean, a group of two, but nonetheless, but still, it's better than a solo practitioner. Mm -hmm. But that also creates issues in your recruitment strategy to have a, that small a, a call group. So, yeah. It's going to detract from the. Uh, right. Are, are you going to. Is this. It, is this presentation going to be given to the total board? Is that what you're intending to do uh, and get approval at some point? Yes. yes. And yes. What, what's the timeline for that? Next meeting. Uh, the meeting next week. Thank you. Next week's meeting? Yes. Uh, I think uh, one vote, one voice here. So I don't represent other than Michelle. Um, I think it's a need. I think you're on the right track. Uh, I don't quarrel with that. I just think that the costs are going to be a lot greater than you have anticipated here. And it's going to take us longer to see a profit. Um, and so I suppose, you know, it would be helpful if you're going to take this to the board to be able to see, a, rather than just the numbers, a little more of, of your, your dollar planning. Is there, uh, are the costs, um, you know, what are your employee cost percentage increases that you've done over time? What are you looking at in relationship to the volume of patients that you have year to year? You know, all of those things, because it, uh, my gut tells me that you've underestimated how much this is going to be. That's, that's not saying I wouldn't support it or any of those kinds of things. I think it's needed. I just think that you're going to run into trouble and, and you just maybe need to think about this a little bit more. Hey, I can provide the full pro forma to the board. Um, I'd synthesized it to make, give clarity to the main salient points. But if you need the detail, we have the full pro forma for both models. Well, you know, it helps when you go into something like this for us to understand 
uh, what your thinking is and how you came to these numbers. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's not my position to debate you on what you came to, but I would really like to see the thought processes in what you, in what you, how you came to these numbers, you know. Uh, you look, you, you were able to say how you came to the population, uh, what sources you used for that. I think some of this is, sure. is the same thing. And, and maybe I should have said this at the outset as well. I can definitely provide the entire pro forma and explain that in detail. But uh, let me just sw go here. Oh, I'm sorry. The supplemental uh, slides are not here. But they were probably here. in the packet. Yeah. Where the assumptions that went into the pro forma, which are the most significant drivers for the pro forma, are included. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. And I can speak I to that. that from the top of my mind. I know that we built in very conservative assumptions. We took the. I talked about the no-show rate. We took the pair mix as is. We know what the pair mix for that geography is. That pair mix then builds into the revenue model. And the revenue model is really now two-part because you're looking at the FQHC revenue model, and that only impacts uh, your Medi-Cal and Medicare. The rest are contracted rates. So that's where the FQHC model comes into play. And then the difference in the non-FQHC model is built into the revenue assumption. So we did the modeling on that and built that in and had our internal team validated through several sources. Um, now on the expense side, it's the same on both sides. So we did take the cost of the uh, salary increase year over year, and we've also taken into account the MGMA um, uh, guidelines for what it costs to hire a primary care physician, and we've built that in. We've taken our internal numbers on the costs for hiring uh, medical assistants, uh, half a, a practice manager, as well as a, um, a, a receptionist. The costs that you see built in there are our actual costs based on the model that we currently have within Alameda Health System. So they're not, uh, uh, they're not assumptions, they're actuals. Uh, on the revenue side, when you look at the ancillary piece, which is a significant line, uh, let me go back to that. Uh, when you look at the revenues from ancillaries, um, Rania actually did an analysis which looked at our actual FQHC physician primary care um, well, there, you know, she pulled providers, and she looked to see what is their ancillary of, um, volumes generated from a provider visit, a patient visiting a provider to our clinic. Where do they get sent? How many labs do they generate? How many? So she did that analysis, and that's what we've captured and modeled and built into this. Based so on a, the conservative model of how many patients. Yes. Per, yeah. Mm. And then we made an assumption. We said we know that now 1,350 is the panel size per physician. We know that in our FQHC clinics today, we get about 2.3 visits per patient. So that's the model that we built in on the way at the top. And that's what we've used. And we said first year, now that is at 100% year three, but it's not And you not said so. how many patients the first year, 4.7? Is that what you said? Yeah, uh, we take about 250 days out of the year as the years the office is open, which is the standard uh, model that we use internally. And if you take that for amongst two physicians and you divide this, you, it comes to about 4.7 uh, visits per day, or it's 4.7 patients is how many they would see in year one, which is really a low number. Typically, um, a high-performing clinic would see, could see up to 20 per patient, or it could be in the range of 13 to 15.
So we've built in incredibly conservative assumptions year one. We don't anticipate that to happen. We okay. actually expect it to be better. But I took a step back, and we took a step back and built conservative assumptions because we didn't want to overstate something here. Okay. And, and what is your plan to get the people there? Um, well, the plan will commence as soon as we have the, the go-ahead to, you know, the go-ahead to move forward. So publicity is put in here. I mean, do you have outreach and all that's in Absolutely. here as well? Yes, and most of us, most of that is a captive uh, patient population that's currently existing with our alliance partners. Ah. So we've talked to them. We know so Alliance that, is going to yes, refer. And that's the significant patient population that we're targeting. Mm -hmm. We do have a number uh, in terms of, you know, commercials, but we didn't build that in yet. We took as is today and said if we were just to get this patient population in today, what would that look like? And that's what we built our model on. And that's what you see in year three. Years one and two are just a ramp up to get us there. So it's a conservative assumption saying a clinic doesn't become 100% operational year one. Uh, so it's, it, it is incredibly conservative. So, so the numbers I'm seeing on the encounters are really based upon the existing uh, Alameda population. Yes, yes. So are, that's where you're getting. In, okay. in those two zip codes, what is the number of Medi-Cal lives? Right. Uh, they're currently assigned. They could be going to any one of our wellness centers, but we also know that there is an access issue and wait time. So we would then bring those patients and bring them care in the geography that they reside. So right. it's a win-win. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, we've talked to the Alliance and we know that there are other patients that they can assign to us as well. So that's the number that you see yeah. built in there. Because if you were just relying more on the commercial Medicare population, you'd probably see a very different dynamic in terms of the growth patterns of that practice. The only other thing that would concern me here is if you're bringing online two very new primary care physicians, it, it may take longer for them to ramp up. Um, and, and your numbers may only be aggressive, not because the patient population doesn't exist, but because the productivity Right, and those for especially if you're bringing two new providers. I mean, if you're going to look at a recruitment strategy, you might want to look at bringing in someone who's a little more seasoned and a little bit more experienced, and bringing then someone else to partner with them that's just out of their residency program. It's just a, a thought you might want to Two new providers together, alone in a practice, is a very different dynamic. Um. D despite my questions, I want to say that the way that this is presented was so accessible and so easy to understand. I, it was really very easy to understand, so I want to thank you for that. Um, the other thing is when you present this to the board, it may be that you, um, the year three, I, I would hate to have us have a hard expectation that you're going to be profitable in year three. So. I think that should be built on a hope and assumption rather than this is what we expect. I know it's a nuance, but I think we ought to give it a chance to, to blossom. I, I concur with Trustee Lawrence as well. I, I think, you know, we're, we're very hopeful that we would see these numbers. I think they're, they might be a bit aggressive. And I think it's incredibly important that we continue to grow our primary care physician in that area especially. And so, you know, if it continues to be uh, dollars invested in that strategy, then I think that's fine. But I agree. I mean, I think that may create an expectation that we may not be able to.
And I say that, not, not to harp on this, but, but sometimes the expectation when we got into San Leandro, there was an expectation by some of the board members that this thing ought to be paid off right now. And it, I knew it would, and many of us on the board did, knew it would take some time. And so I guess we're sending you the message, this is great, but, but it may not be as profitable as you hope. And if it is, hallelujah. But thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It, it is absolutely the right thing to do. So. It's, it's absolutely the right thing to do. And, you know, the market assessment and your needs, they're really well presented here. Thank you. Any other questions? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We have uh, no report under uh, education <coughs> in the Finance Committee. So... We will go to tab seven, which is the planning calendar. So everybody has a chance to oh. look at the planning calendar. Yeah, just, just very quickly, and this could change, but what we're anticipating for next month is to give you your first look at the budget review, uh, talk about the EHR selection process. Ishwari um, has been working on another big project, which is the GI service line. I'm not sure if that will be quite done by then. Uh, a couple of retrospective reviews, relatively small contracts, uh, and then get into... Um, the San Leandro rehab uh, construction process, perhaps having the contract. I'm not sure if we'll be quite ready by then. And then we'll see if we we'll see if we have time for education. So, what's going on? Okay. Any questions? Mm -hmm. No. I think that brings us uh, to the end of our agenda. Do we have a um, uh, first of all, public comment. Do we have any public comment? Any trustee comments? Uh, I, I did want to make a comment. Could you please thank Ira for just how well the yeah. freed, I mean, I was all fired up. To, he's, he left, oh, he and left. I wanted to yeah. say it he's before left. that. He's left, I will. But I the will. entire, all of those things I had, like, so, I was fired up to ask so many questions, and it was laid out so beautifully, the context setting in the beginning, and then all of this detail. There was no discussion needed. Actually, all the information tonight I thought was presented very, very well. I did very too. Clear, very concise, and very easy to follow. So I commend your entire team for all the work they've done. Really great. Okay. Oh, <laughs> I think that, that leaves us with someone making a motion to adjourn, right? I move we adjourn. Second. second. All in favor, say aye. 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 aye.